Loving God, loving people, changing the world. Loving God, loving people, changing the world. Loving God, loving people, changing the world. I think that, that some ways, um, this last season of time has impacted the American church in a very particular way. It has sort of um, put the church into what I call dog paddling mode, where we're just trying to keep our head above water. And, and that's been true in, in, in the business world, that has been true in family life, and relationships, and it has absolutely been true in the church. As I talk to different uh, pastors and church leaders that I have relationship with, I was just a couple weeks ago at a conference with a bunch of church leaders and we were talking about this and, and everybody sort of had the same story, which is like, okay, I've been sort of captaining this ship and we, we just found ourselves in the Bermuda Triangle and the storm was raging and the only goal became don't sink. And a lot of us have felt that way in our lives for the last year and a half. The goal is don't sink. And we've sort of lost a sense of Vision, we sort of lost a sense of passion. We're just trying to keep from sinking. And guys, I don't know what the storm, what lies ahead in terms of storms. I, I don't know. I would have never predicted the particular storms we've all faced as a society for the last year and a half, almost two years now. Um, but I think that in some ways, we've been treading water and just trying to get there. And if we're not careful, we can slip into a situation where we think that the church is just here to keep the doors open. That the, that the purpose of the church is to continue to exist. And that is exactly the opposite of what Jesus taught when he said that unless you're willing to lay down your life, you're going to lose it. And if you will lay down your life, you will be able to take it up. See, Christianity, the calling of the church, the mission of the church, is about uh, a mission that could cost you. And, and for a long time, because of the circumstances surrounding us, a lot of us have just been like, listen, I'm just trying not to drown, I'm just trying not to drown, I'm just trying not to drown. And, and I'm here today to remind you that that is not what God called his church to be. Loving God, loving people, changing the world. That's what he has called us to. Now think about this. This is a big book, right? 66 different books collected within your Bible. 1,189 chapters. 31,102 verses. It took me half the week to count these. <laughs> 782,815 words in the New American Standard Bible. It's the best-selling book of all time. 
and most people have never read it. A lot, a lot of us hardly read any book, right? We're just not book people. That's the way our society has gone. We would much rather wait for the movie, amen? So we want to wait for the movie, or if we have to read, like for a school assignment or something, give me the Cliff's Notes. That, look, are you guys too, too young for that? Did you not have Cliff's Notes in high school? Do they still have those in high school now, teachers? Yeah. Yeah, they're no longer necessary. They have this thing called the internet now. But we used to get these little books called Cliff's Notes. It was like, you know, Death of a Salesman in 11 pages. It was great. And we would read the Cliff's Notes. And, And a lot of us are just like, you know what? If you give me the Cliff's Notes, I'll read it. So it should be no surprise that some people once came to Jesus and they said, listen, can you give us the Cliff's Notes version of what the Bible teaches. Just, you know, bottom line it for us, Jesus. Just wrap it up for us. And what did Jesus say? I know that some of you know the answer, but we're gonna make sure that we see it in scripture. Go to Matthew chapter 22. First book of the New Testament, book of Matthew. Go to Matthew 22. And let's, uh, let's relive this scene a little bit with Jesus because the crowd is coming around him. They're trying to find ways to trip him up. They're trying to confuse him. They're now sending lawyers to interview him in the middle of a crowd so that they can make him look bad. And they keep coming out looking bad. And here's what happens the next time they're going to look bad. In uh, chapter 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer... Asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus is saying, you can wrap up the entire Old Testament teaching. If you get this, you're getting the point. The point is this, love God and love people. That's it, loving God, loving people. So where do we get the change the world part of our motto around here at Grace Fellowship? I'm glad you asked. Go to Matthew chapter 28. And let's look again at a passage that we have visited several times in the last couple of months. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. Right before the ascension, Jesus gathers his disciples, and here's what it says. It says, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age." And it's reiterated again for us in a different way in Acts chapter 1. So go to Acts chapter 1 and let's revisit this again. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus is about to ascend and this is the way he words it this time. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He tells him, go to Jerusalem and wait. And while you're waiting, something's going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And here's what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. 
So that's where we get the change the world side of things. Love God, love people, change the world. If you wanna sum it up, if you wanna just simplify it, if you wanna just understand what does Jesus really want my life to be about, I think that's a pretty good way to think about it. Loving God, loving people, changing the world. That is the mission that Jesus came to earth to accomplish. And that is the mission that he's invited us. That's the mission that he has commanded us to join him in. Loving God, loving people, changing the world. Now, we've been looking at the book of Acts now for a few months. And so as we take these next couple of weeks to wrap the whole thing up, put a bow on the package, I want us to get intensely practical in our discussion of the lessons of the book of Acts. If this series that we've been preaching just fills our heads with knowledge, but doesn't transform the way our lives are being lived, then it has been a waste of time at best. And perhaps worse, because the scripture says that knowledge puffs up. And and if we just are filled with knowledge, We become puffed up, and I would just say this, um, the last thing the world needs right now is for the church to come across as even more arrogant and judgmental than we have already seemed to come across. Think of it this way. Food, you probably didn't know I'm a registered dietitian. I am, I'm registered, there was a registry on my desk, I signed it, registered dietitian, and here's what I could tell you about food, I happen to be an expert in food, here's what I could tell you, food is designed by God, the scripture says this, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, that's what the scripture says, in other words, that, that God designed human beings in such a way that they're a part of a system and within that system is food because food is meant to nourish the human body, right? So it gives us energy, those calories that we're terrified of that we look on the back of the packages to see how many are in it, those calories are actually another way of talking about energy and energy is needed in order to live life, right? So we all know this. The food is designed to give us energy so that energy can be expended on things like work and play and effort and things of that nature, right? But we also know this. If all you do is sit around and eat and you never get up and expend any of that energy, you become fat, lazy, unhealthy, and eventually dead. That's what happens. So, it doesn't take a genius to see that while the American church in our lifetime is without question the most overfed church in the history of the world. I know you're thinking about the potlucks. I'm talking about Bible. Raise your hand if you have some sort of app on your phone that gets you access to a Bible. Yeah, you have Bible apps, 
You have uh, the internet where you can look up whoever's your favorite preacher and whatever topic you want to hear and you can go listen to that topic be preached on by multiple different preachers. We all have access to uh, books and teaching. All it takes is a click of the, of the mouse and you will have a new book in your iPad and you can start studying it right then. Um, we have theological seminaries and we have Bible colleges and we have Christian schools and we have chapel services ad nauseum, and I think it's wonderful. I'm glad we have all those things. They're all very, very good and helpful things. That being said, we happen to be the most malnourished version of the church the world may have ever seen. We can eat and eat and eat and eat and eat, and if we don't expend any of that spiritual power on actually living out the things God's called us to do, then we become fat, lazy, overfed, and eventually dead. So, everybody in a good mood? (laughs) (laughs) So let's get practical. We have learned a bunch from the book of Acts. What are we gonna do with it? I say this. I say we use it to change the world. And that brings up an obvious question. Okay, pastor, how? There's a lot of information, a lot of notes I took, a lot of things I learned, a lot of discussions in my grace group. How do I take all of this stuff and use it to change the world? The truth is, the truth is, most of us don't actually believe we can change the world. We really don't. We we don't think of ourselves as world changers. And so when we hear the motto repeated, loving God, loving people, changing the world, there's a chance that we just kind of turn our minds off to that and don't even really take it seriously because after all, I mean, how am I going to change the world? How's little old me going to change the planet? I mean, what are the odds of that? It's impossible for me to change the world. So we said this last week, most of us, are not in positions of high leverage where one decision we make influences thousands. Most of us um, are not bold and influential leaders that have a voice that goes out beyond just our little circle. Most of us are not brilliant inventors who can look and go, you know what, I have come up with a way to cure cancer. Most of us are not billionaires who can just throw tons of money at a problem. If you are, see me after the service. I want to talk to you about some needs in the church. (laughs) And yet, most of us actually, as we've been saying, we don't really actually consider ourselves missionaries. We don't actually consider ourselves ministers. We know that's the right answer on the quiz, but that's not actually how we get up and face each day. We don't think of ourselves that way. So it's not realistic for me to think of changing the world. There are eight billion people on this planet and you're never gonna meet the majority of them. There's 195 countries on earth, or at least there was yesterday. (laughs) Most of us have never even left this country. There are some 6,500 languages spoken across the planet. Most of us don't even speak English very well. (laughs) 
So how's little old me going to be an agent of change for the whole world? Well, I have a suggestion. Stop thinking about changing the world and start thinking about changing your world. That one little word makes all the difference. You see, there's a sense in which we all live in our own little world. Now, I don't mean that in the way that my parents used to say. He kind of lives in his own little world. I don't mean that. I mean that um, every one of us has our own family or, or household, right? We have uh, our, our workplace, perhaps. We have the school that we attend, if you're a student, or, or your church, or, or your group of close friends, right? And, and that's kind of your little world. Has it ever occurred to you that God placed you where you are, when you are, so that you could be on mission with him in your little world? See, we've got we've to change our way of looking at this. Sociologists will tell you that although we live our lives surrounded by tons of people, we only have a direct and significant influence on a few people. Would you agree with that? So um, the figure that that the sociologists throw out is this. They say that every one of us has about 8 to 15 key relationships where we're in a position to make the most difference. So that would be your household or, again, your close friends, your, maybe your next-door neighbor, uh, maybe a business partner that you work with every day, uh, maybe a couple of classmates who are your closest friends, the ones you eat lunch with every day. I was thinking about this. I was thinking when I was in high school, like I was on a campus with 4,300 students, and I ate lunch with the same eight people every day. Most of us probably did. So, so we live in this little world, and it's a circle of influence, if you will, and it's a small circle of influence. And uh, the Greeks called this small circle of influence that we all live in oikos, your oikos, O-I-K-O-S. So how do we change the world? One life at a time in our own oikos. Don't get confused by the bigness of the mission. God has not called you to change the whole world. God has called you to play your role in your place, in your time, with your sphere of influence, your oikos, and he's called everybody else to do that, and he gave them all a different oikos, so that if all of us in the body of Christ would actually take seriously that we are on mission with Jesus in our oikos, the whole world gets changed. That is the genius of his plan. Now, your oikos is always changing, It's rather fluid, right? You have a job change, stop working with these people, start working with those people. uh, You're a student and and you go from middle school to high school and all of a sudden there's a whole new set of relationships for you. Uh, You move to a new area, you go to a new church. Your oikos is fluid, it moves, it changes, but at any given time, your oikos is roughly eight to 15 people that you can have significant influence in their lives. So your oikos is fluid as God moves you around, but it is, it is that oikos 
where you are the most likely to be able to make the greatest difference. That's why I've been emphasizing so much in this study of the book of Acts, uh, the idea that this calling, we keep rereading, I know you guys have been so patient with me, we keep rereading those verses we read this morning. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Judea, or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, out of most parts of the earth. Acts 1, 8. And we keep rereading these and we keep thinking about these and I keep emphasizing that the Great Commission calls us to go and make what? Disciples of all nations, not just converts. The idea is not to get people to write the, uh, the correct religion on the card when asked a question. The idea is that we would become such followers of Jesus that we look more like him and we begin to impact our world and our communities in the way that he impacted his world in his community. It's fascinating to think about this and I don't want to get off too much on a tangent, but I just want to say this. Jesus took this approach to ministry and we take it for granted and then we don't copy it. Jesus, who was, by the way, the greatest healer the world has ever seen, right? Jesus, who had the most knowledge of anyone the world has ever seen. Jesus, who had the most power of any human being who ever walked the earth. Jesus, who was the greatest preacher the world has ever seen. Jesus, who was the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen. Jesus, the best of the best of the best, and what did he do with his time? Every time the crowd got big, what did Jesus do? Thinned it out. He disappeared. He would say something to them that was so offensive, they would just scratch their heads and go, this guy's a wacko, and they would leave. Or, or he would actually literally like hide himself in the crowd and just be gone suddenly. Well, they remember in, in Mark when he's just starting his ministry? This is the time, right? Time to show off. Time to let them know who you are. He's just starting his ministry. They're bringing him people and he's healing people at Peter's mother-in-law's house and, and there's a line of people out the door and then suddenly they go, uh, where's Jesus? And they go looking for him and they find him in a quiet place all by himself in prayer with the Father and they say, Jesus, Everyone is looking for you. And his response is, let's go somewhere else. That is mind-boggling to me. I mean, every time I read that passage, especially as a pastor, I'm like, no, 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 success is a bigger crowd. The bigger the crowd, the more successful. You know, Jesus, you're never going to get a book deal this way. <laughs> he just kept leaving the crowd behind and, and doing what? Gathering 12 guys, his oikos, and building into those guys. There, there's a book, I, I, I don't always recommend books. Here's a book, you should read it. It's old, it's been around for 50 or more years by Robert Coleman, it's called The Master Plan of Evangelism. It is a study and it's only this big, you can read it. It's like Cliff's Notes, <laughs> you can do it. It is a study of Jesus' approach to ministry, and it shows this in great detail, how Jesus is constantly thinning the crowd so he can make a deeper investment in a smaller number of people because that's the way he designed the system of disciple-making to work. 
He could have gotten huge crowds, preached the gospel, filled stadiums, and had people come forward. He could have started his church, built beautiful buildings. He could have done anything, could have healed diseases. He could have, he could have uh, toppled governments. There are so many things they wanted him to do, but he was doing something more important than that. He was changing his world. And he knew that if he invested in his oikos, and they all in turn invested in their oikos, who would in turn invest in their oikos, that it wouldn't be so long before the whole world had heard about the incredible love of Jesus. There are people in your life with whom you can have real influence. Now listen, I realize that every now and then, someone has a story to tell about how, I don't know, they were at the beach with their family and there was a guy with a megaphone saying, um, you know, rapture 27, turn or burn, and somebody got saved that way. Because God will do anything. Like, God can do anything. Remember, God spoke through Balaam's donkey, which makes me as a preacher feel much better. God can, I'm not saying that there's, there's never time that that works. Um, I, I realize that maybe, maybe you were watching the Super Bowl and a guy held up a sign that said John 3.16 and you as an unbeliever said, wow, I wonder what that means. And so you Googled it and it said John 3.16 is a verse from the Bible. So you went to the store and bought a Bible and you came home and you found John 3.16 and you read it and that's how you came to know Jesus. I'm, I'm not gonna question that. If you tell me that's your um, testimony, but that's not how most of us came to know Jesus. Most of us came to know Jesus because we're in relationship with somebody who knew Jesus. So stop thinking about changing the world and let's start thinking about changing your world. And I guess this is a good time to mention that uh, if God's gonna use you to change your world, he's probably gonna start with you. Maybe God wants to do some things to change you. So maybe it's not about getting other people to come along or agree. Maybe, maybe it's about God doing a work in your life and that as he transforms you, you become the light of the world and you begin to stand out in the darkness. So, so maybe some of us are resisting work God's trying to do in our lives right now. And I just want to say, listen, God's going to change the world. He wants to begin with you. Here's an interesting truth. Approximately 90% of Christ followers came to Christ in the same way. And it wasn't primarily through a church program. It wasn't primarily through some uh, ministry event. It wasn't primarily through a professional clergy person. It was through a relationship with somebody who already knew Jesus. Now, sometimes God might have used that relationship so that someone invited someone to a church event and it was through that process that the person came to know Christ, but it all began with that relationship. A relationship with somebody whose life they could watch, who they could learn to trust because that person had loved them in the way that only Jesus loves people. And then, the, and then when that person had something to share about what made their life different, it actually gave them credibility and they were able to say yes to a relationship with Jesus. It was that relationship that started the whole thing. And once we know Jesus, most of our spiritual growth comes through people with whom we have relationships. 
who invest their lives in us. Let me show you how this works. You remember uh, Jesus, uh, this is a huge day. Uh, if you go back to Mark chapter five, turn to Mark chapter five. We'll look at a couple of verses there real quick. But, but go to Mark chapter five and let me tell you what's been going on. Remember, uh, there was a storm on the sea and there was this whole situation and Jesus calms the storm and all of that. And then they come across the sea and they land at a place called Decapolis. Now Decapolis is a Greek term that means 10 cities. It's a region on the... On the um, Sea of Galilee, that is these 10 little towns that are all next to each other, and it is a Greek region. It's called Decapolis, which is a Greek name, and all of these cities have Greek names, and they are uh, Gentile people, which answers the question, when this crazy guy comes running out of the tombs, remember, he's demon-possessed, he's naked, he's bleeding, he's screaming, there's chains hanging off of him, and he's running out of a, out of a tombstone. I mean, this is a uh, release this movie in October kind of movie movie, right? This guy is terrifying, and he comes running, and of course, he's filled with a legion of demons, and Jesus casts out the demons, and where do the demons go? Pigs. And does it ask, did it ever occur to you, why are there so many pigs? This is Israel. Why are they raising pigs? These people should not be raising pigs. I have to think Jesus got a little chuckle when all those pigs went over the edge, right? What are those pigs doing there? It's because this is Israel, but it's the Gentile section, okay? That's the capitalists. So they all come when they hear what happened, and uh, we're going to find it in Mark chapter 5. Pick it up with me in verse 14 of Mark 5. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him, to leave their region. Jesus had just done this incredible thing, showed his power over Satan, and their response was to be so afraid that they asked him, get out of here. They begged him, don't stay here. Leave now. Look what happens. Verse uh, 18. As he was getting into the boat... The man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. And that's the last we ever hear about that guy. There's the answer to the trivia question, who was the first Christian missionary of all time? It was the demon-possessed guy. He wanted to come with Jesus, and Jesus said, go to your oikos. Go to your people. Tell them what I've done for you, right? And we don't hear any more about it, and we go, okay, what a cool story. Now, turn to chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 just a couple chapters later. By the way, how much time did Jesus spend there? I don't know, an hour, two, three hours, maybe? And then they said, get out. And he got in the boat and left. 
And now it's two chapters later, verse 31. Again, he went from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. Now he's back. And they brought to him one who, had, uh, who was deaf and spoke with difficulty and they implored him to lay his hands on him. And Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers in his ears and after spitting, he touched his tongue with saliva and looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, uh, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed and he began speaking plainly and he gave them orders not to tell anyone but the more he ordered them the more widely he continued to proclaim it and they were utterly astonished saying he has done all things well he makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak this is Decapolis and then what happens chapter 8 in those days when there was again a large crowd they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion. And it goes on, and this is the story of the feeding of the 4,000, right? A few pieces of bread and a few fish and 4,000 people are fed. And many, 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 many people come to put their trust in Jesus that day. Where does this happen? In Decapolis. What was the witness in Decapolis? Jesus had been there for three hours. It was the one guy. One guy who did what Jesus said. Go back to your people and tell your people what I've done for you. And that led to a transformation of an entire region of people coming to know Christ. He impacted his oikos. You'll probably never have a better opportunity to make disciples than you do in your own oikos. We saw this in chapter 10. Remember the Holy Spirit spoke to Cornelius and said, hey, go send for this guy Peter. He has a message for you. And so he sends for Cornelius. You can read this in chapter 10 of, of the book of Acts. He sends for Cornelius. And when he gets Cornelius, let me just read to you what it says in Acts chapter 10, verse 24. You don't have to turn there. But in Acts 10, 24, here's what it says. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So when Jesus came to the home of Cornelius, we didn't talk about this a couple weeks ago. Jesus came to the home of Cornelius. Cornelius had called all of his close friends. He had his oikos right there. I want you to hear what this, this guy who represents Jesus has to say. And Peter spoke and the Holy Spirit fell. And guess what? The, gen, the Gentile church was born that day in the oikos of a man named Cornelius. As far as we know, Cornelius never preached a sermon. As far as we know, Cornelius never had a position of leadership in a local church. He just invited his oikos and the Holy Spirit did the rest. Dr. Tom Rayner has done a ton of extensive research on the topic of how people come to Christ. And his research has uncovered some interesting facts. Here we go. 90% of unchurched people, 90% of unchurched people, people who don't attend church, um, said that they are somewhat likely to attend church if they were invited by someone they knew. Is that a bigger number than you would expect? That's a modern that just a couple years ago, they did that research. 90% said, yeah, I'm somewhat likely to come if someone I know invites me. But only 21% of Christians ever invite anyone to church. Now, here's the, here's the zinger. 
and only 2% of Christians ever invite anyone to church who isn't already a Christian. So when we do invite somebody to church, it's because they're like, yeah, I'm kind of fed up with my old church. Yeah, I'm looking for a new church. You go, oh, come and try our church. Or we invite somebody to church because, hey, you know, we're having VBS and your church isn't doing it. Send your kids to our church. And, and that's how we invite people to church. Only 2% of the people we invite to church don't know Jesus already. And that's just about inviting people to a church function. 90% said they are somewhat likely to attend if just someone would ask them. But there are many other ways that we can share Christ with a loved one. How about being the one person who's there for them when they're going through a hard divorce and maybe they're the ones everybody blames? How about being the one person who's there for them who shows up when you get a call at late at night saying, hey, you know what, I got pulled over and I was over the legal limit and I'm in jail. How about being the one who shows up when they've just, when they've just uh, gone through some terrible tragedy and now they need somebody who just loves them? See, we're already invited into the lives of the people in our oikos. So it's not weird when we minister to them. It's not weird when we care for them. It's not weird when we love them. It's not even uncomfortable. It's natural. So how do you change the world? By changing your world. One life at a time. Loving God. Loving people. Changing the world. You're a part of a movement that is meant to change eternity. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Let me rephrase that. Start where you are. Start where you are and watch the circles grow. God will do amazing things when his church is ready to step up and actually love God, love people, and change the world. Let's stand together and pray. Father, what a privilege it is to just know you, and what a glorious thing it has been during this season in which all of us have gone through very unusual circumstances, where, where life has been harder and it hasn't been easy to just continue on a track where we're going somewhere. And to some degree, Lord, you have sustained us as we have been just trying to keep the ship from sinking and keep our heads above the water. And we want to say thank you for that. But God, we want to move. We want to be a part of a movement. You have not called us just to sit and watch. You've called us to be a part of a movement that changes the lives of people and therefore changes eternity. And so, God, we thank you that the Holy Spirit is available to us in the same way that he was available to the early church. We thank you, God, that your word is still as profound as it ever was, and we hold it in our hands, and it can be used to change people's lives. We thank you for the churches and the programs and the opportunities and the resources that you've given us that make it in so many ways easier to, to pursue the mission that you've called us to. And now we ask you, God, grab us by the hand and take us with you on this mission. Forgive us if we've been dragging our feet. Forgive us if we've been distracted. Forgive us if we've been making it about ourselves. God, we want it to be about you. Help us to love you, love people. And as we do, Lord, through us, change the world, we pray. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.